Romans chapter 1, 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You can have a seat. Let's pray together as we dive into these words. Lord God, I pray this morning as we look into your word that we would be rightly encouraged and convicted by your Holy Spirit. And that if we come into uh, this place, if we come here this morning uh, proud in our heart that you would humble us, that if we come in uh, low in our spirit, that you would raise us up. Lord, we thank you for the community of people that you put around us for those in our lives who know and, and love you, who have uh, spoke, spoken the gospel into our lives and to us in moments maybe where we wanted to hear it or didn't want to hear it, who were bold enough and eager enough by uh, your spirit to, to do so. We thank you for the encouragement and the growth and the strengthening that has come from that. And we pray, God, uh, I want to pray this morning specifically for uh, the church in Vigia Dolores and Fabian as he, uh, even this morning, is leading them in, in worship and, and most likely is preaching your word as well. And God, I pray that they would be strengthened. And we pray with Paul, as Paul prayed for the opportunity to come to Rome, we pray, God, as we've been held back from being uh, able to visit Vigia Dolores, we pray that by your will that we might be able to send people there, that, would, that we would do something that would be uh, encouraging and strengthening to them and, and mutually strengthening to us as well. And Lord, we pray that you would bless them with your Holy Spirit uh, to work in them and in their community that uh, they would be eager to preach the gospel and that many would come to know you, uh, that a harvest would be reaped there. We pray that. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. 
Well, I want to I start this morning off with a story, and it may be a story you've heard if you've been around me for a while. You may have heard this story or part of this story, so if you are like, oh, I know this story, you know, bear with me, it's, it's fine. But I thought it would, was really uh, helpful to what we're talking about this morning. When I was uh, a sophomore in college, uh, I lived in the dorms at the college that Amanda and I went to um, with two of my closest friends that I had grown up with. And they, they had been friends with me since elementary school. They had been friends all the way through high school. They had been um, probably uh, the, one of the biggest encouragements to me in my faith as we went through those uh, teenage years with all the challenges that come along with that. And that, and that was an awesome experience, to be in college, to, to uh, live with your friends, uh, to do all of, of the things that go along with that. But as awesome as that was, th- what I was even more excited about was the opportunity the next year to move out of the dorms and to get an apartment with, you know, my besties or whatever, you know, whatever they call them now. I don't know. Do you call them besties? I don't know. Anyway. And so as we progressed through the year, I, and we got into the second semester, I began talking to my friends about this, this uh, opportunity, right? Like more and more, it's like, hey, you know, like we're going to get an apartment together next year. It's going to be so awesome. Uh, you know, we got to figure out where we're going to get this apartment or whatnot. Because, you know, in, in, in a t- town like Manhattan, uh, those apartments, they get rented out six to eight months in advance. And so... I kept talking about this, and, and they didn't seem too concerned, and I thought, eh, they're pretty disorganized in general as human beings. I mean, you know, I, I live with them. I knew that pretty well. And so I figured, eh, they're just, you know, uh, procrastinating this thing. And so I kept reminding them, kept reminding them, and we're in a, a couple months into the second semester. It's getting closer and closer to spring break, and I thought, goodness, if we don't go out and find an apartment soon, we're, there ain't going to be an apartment for us to get. And so I was talking about this one day at uh, the campus center where we were eating and, and, and brought it up again. And, and my friends, they said, hey, Cody, we, hey, let's go back to the dorm. Uh, we, we need to talk to you about something. This is weird. Uh, okay, let's, you're, my, you're my pals. Let's talk to you about anything. Let's go back to the dorms and have a conversation. And so we go back to the dorms, and little did I know I was like cattle joyfully going to the slaughter, right? see where this is going. They sat me down. They said, Cody, uh, here's the deal. We, we found an apartment. Oh, really? Great. Where is it? Oh, this is going to be awesome. Well, it's, it's a four-person apartment, and uh, the deal is, is we have this other friend that, that, that we want to live with us. Oh, oh, that's, that's great. I love him. He's awesome. Yeah, that'd be great. All four of us, this would be, this would be the best year ever. Well, here's the deal. Uh, he has a friend that's going to come to school here next year that he wants to live with us. And so he's going to live with us. I mean, I'm not done taking math for a couple of years, but that's five people. It's a four-person apartment. How's, how's that going to work? Well, uh, you're not living with us, Cody. Bum, 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 womp, womp, right? I was devastated. 
I mean, I, I can't over-exaggerate. And they're like, oh, sorry, man. We, sh- we really should have told you sooner. We just didn't know how to tell you. And I'm thinking, yeah, you should have told me sooner. I don't know if I'm going to be able to find an apartment or a roommate now. Everyone else, every other friend I have has roommates. Every other friend I have has, ha- ha- is, has an apartment already rented. I would have trusted them with anything. I would have trusted them literally with anything in my entire life. But I couldn't trust them to tell me the truth. And, it, and what was worse is they had been planning this for months and kept me in the dark about it the entire time. They picked some guy they didn't know to live with them instead of me, who they'd known for more than half their life. Essentially, they'd left me homeless. A good friend is hard to find, right? That's how the saying goes. And you might think to yourself, what's this got to do with Paul and the Romans in this passage for this morning? Well, more than you might think. You see, Paul is well known among the apostle, as, as the apostle to the Gentiles. And the Roman church is, if there's any church in the ancient world there, in the first century world, that is the Gentile church, it's the Roman church. But yet Paul's never been there. He's never visited. And, 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 and so the question is, what gives? In fact, the Roman church is offended by this fact. Best as we can tell, there's grumbling, gossip perhaps, resentment towards Paul because he's not been there. This is, this is what happens, isn't it? Someone does something, says something. Someone doesn't do something. And from a distance, we interpret those actions or those words, not knowing all the facts, and we draw a conclusion. And we begin to develop resentment based on our faulty conclusion that in our mind seems like it's just so logical and such a bulletproof conclusion. This has to be what it is. And then we begin to gossip to others about it, or we spread that faulty conclusion, and Satan continues to pour fuel on the fire. And so here's Paul preparing to visit Rome, writing a letter to them, to people whom he at least has an inkling may hold, maybe holding a grudge against him, maybe holding this fact that he hasn't visited against them, against him. But unlike my friends in my story, Paul actually hasn't done a single thing wrong. You would expect Paul, as he starts this letter, to start off a little hot, right? I mean, if you were writing a letter and you knew this was going on, you might start a little, I don't know, a little spicy if you were writing this letter, right? How dare you think this? How dare you think about me this way? What right do you have? But after laying out his credentials like we saw last week in our passage this morning, what he does is he actually expresses his love and care for them instead. You see, the gospel charts a different course for these kinds of situations. What we see in our passage this morning is Paul wants to show them 
The tactic that he takes is to show them how they should consider him a good Christian friend, an ally, a teammate, but for reasons that you may not guess. You see, we don't always have the best parameters for what makes a good friend. We think our parameters are, are, are great, but, but sometimes we fall for the person who makes us feel good in the moment, but isn't willing to say and do what we really need. Who turns out to actually have their own interest in mind, not our long-term good. And so how can we sift through all of that and determine who is actually a good friend? Better yet, perhaps the better question is this. How can we, how can I, be a good Christian friend to others? This morning, we're going to look at four qualities. Four qualities of a good Christian friend from the words that Paul gives here in Romans 8, 1, 8 through 17. And so, as we begin this section with verse 8, it starts with these words, First, I thank my God. You see, early in... Paul's letters, he often describes what he is thankful for towards each church that he's writing to. And that's a pretty common way that he introduces his letters. If you read Philippians, he does that. If you just go through the letters, and, and, and that's what he does. But here he says, first, and if you didn't catch in the scripture reading, there isn't a second or a third. First isn't the start of a list. He's meaning to indicate importance. Paul's noting the importance of the thing that he is thankful for. And what is it that he's thankful for? What does it say? It says that Paul is thankful that their faith is proclaimed in all the world. So above everything else, Paul is thankful for their faith. They, they have such strong faith and that God is doing such a great work in Rome, in that church, and that their faith is having a multiplying impact in the spreading of the gospel and encouraging of other churches in other places. Like, see, a good Christian friend, a good friend cares, right? A good friend cares, but a good Christian friend cares about the right things. And here's the first quality I want to share with you. A good Christian friend cares predominantly about your faith. A good Christian friend cares predominantly about your faith. And that's not to say that they don't care about anything else. I want you to understand. I've chosen the word predominantly very specifically. That's not to say they don't care about anything else, but they care about your faith before and above anything else. They care about your relationship with Christ. They care about your belief in the gospel. They care about your continued growth in sanctification. Those things matter to them more. There are lots of things that we can and we should care about in one another's lives and in the lives of our friends. We should care about the physical, the emotional, the, the familial, the relational needs of our friends. But listen, if your job, if your success, if your health, and all of those things are weak, 
but your faith is strong, a good Christian friend is thankful. A good Christian friend finds reason for thanksgiving for your life. Conversely, if all of those things are strong, if your job is going well, your finances are going well, your health is going well, and your faith is weak, a good Christian friend comes to you concerned about your life. That's what a good Christian friend does. So let me ask you, are you a good Christian friend? Or are, are your good Christian friends concerned or thankful about you right now? Or let's flip it around. What makes you thankful for your church and your Christian community? Earthly signs of success? Things that benefit you here on earth? Or the growth and the spread of faith in Christ? And so the first quality is of a good Christian friend is that they care predominantly about your faith, but the second is that a good Christian friend prioritizes serving God before appeasing you. A good Christian friend prioritizes serving God before appeasing you. Each of the next three sections that we're going to see start with the word for. It's a bit of a linguistic marker telling us that Paul is shifting from one thought to the next. And so you can pay attention for, the, for those kinds of things as you are reading scripture. And here it says, for God is my witness. He wants his audience to know he really, really means this. It's, it's like when a parent throws out the middle name, right? You've done that as a parent? Like, my, my dad, we, hey, Cody, whatever. And he says, Cody Williams. It's like, oh, uh-oh, dad means business, right? Paul is saying, for God is my witness. I mean business right now. What I'm about to say, I'm adamant that you would know this with total confidence, right? Verses 9 and 10 go on to describe how he has prayed for an opportunity to come to them, and he continues to look for one. They may doubt his love and care for them because, because of his not coming, but he wants them to know that his absence isn't from a lack of desire or effort. He truly does love and care for them. And so if they interpret his absence as a lack of love and care, that's not his fault, that's their fault. However, he also wants them to understand his top priority is to serve and to obey God, even above what they want, or even above what he wants, because he wants to come to them. And yet God has not allowed it yet. And so he continues to pray, Lord, would, you, would it be your will that I could come to my friends, the Romans? Paul says that he serves God with my spirit in the gospel. Whatever he does towards them, it must be in service and submission to God above all things. And so as much as he'd like to see them, he pleads 
submits himself to God. And here's why this is so important, guys. This is why I want you to get this. If we seek to appease ourselves or if we seek to appease others first, before our desire to submit to and serve God, a few things happen. A few things will inevitably always happen. We will trade long-term gains for short-term conveniences. We will short-circuit the greater possibilities God has for us. We will end up justifying or overlooking something that is actually sinful as if it's not sinful because we are trying to appease a person rather than please God and submit to him above all things. We'll, we'll justify in our head, oh, well, this is the nice thing to do for this person, when in reality, it's a sinful thing. And here's the, here's the paradox. When we demote our friends, or even, I will say, for those of you who are married, demote your spouse, okay? When we demote them below God, it actually promotes them as our devotion to God enables us to be better friends to them. High tide raises all ships. And there's not a tide higher than Jesus. And so when you demote everyone else below God and you put God and pleasing him first, what actually happens is everyone else is elevated as your love for people is elevated because your love for God has been elevated. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so it may seem illogical to you to say, no, my wife or my best friend or whatever isn't first in my life, but actually, if you want them, if you want to be a better Christian friend to them, you need to demote them below Jesus. That's what you need to do. How often do we complain and settle for lesser things in our lives and in the lives of our friends because we fail to trust God and prioritize serving Him? How often do we relabel our actions as loving service to our friend when in reality it's idolatrous disobedience to God? See, there are some situations where it's easy to see what is prioritizing and serving God before appeasing others. Some are very easy to see, but there are lots of situations that won't be so cut and dry in our lives. And so you'll actually have to do some spiritual work here, friends. You'll actually have to, like Paul, get on your knees and seek God and his will. Thankfully, though, thankfully, God's sovereign. And so when we make mistakes here, and we will, there'll be times when you will realize that, oh, man, I was, I was just trying to appease someone rather than serving God. But the great thing is God's sovereign, and he can turn our mistakes into successes if we would turn and seek him again. That he promises. And so at the core, this quality 
at the core, this quality is less about the right, having the right actions, and it's more about having the right heart, friends. Having a heart that wants to please and serve and submit to God. And Paul gives us two examples right here in the text. The friend that prioritizes serving God does two things towards their friends. These are kind of subpoints, if you will. Two words, prayer and presence. It serves God when you pray regularly for others. Paul says his prayer is without ceasing. It's always. Those are figures of speech to emphasize how consistent and constant and regular his prayer is. He prays that, that, that God's will would happen. And so I ask you, do you regularly pray for God's will in your friends' lives? That's how you can be a good Christian friend. Do you regularly pray for God's will in your friends' lives. It serves God when you are present with others as well. Paul understands that our ministry to others should model Christ's ministry. It should be incarnational, meaning Jesus came from heaven to earth to be among us, and that's how we ought to be with those we minister to. Physically and personally present. That Those two things that presence is irreplaceable. Like proximity matters, right? You know this to be true. You, you understand how powerful it can be in certain moments when a friend is actually physically there with you. Now, sometimes if they would just be with you and shut their mouth, that that's actually the best thing, right? I, I, that's probably what people think about me all the time. Just, just be here and shut your mouth, Cody. Right? Don't shake your heads, yes. Come on. <laughs> Presence isn't always possible, though. Just like it wasn't possible for Paul for a long time. Geography might keep you separated for a time. Relational tension or other, some other situation may be out of your control and may keep you from being able to be physically present. But, but are you praying as you wait, like Paul prayed? Are you actively waiting and looking for an opportunity to come close Listen, if your friends can't find you present, they should at least find you prayerful, right? Quality three that I think Paul talks about. A good Christian friend seeks mutual spiritual encouragement. Their desire is for mutual spiritual encouragement. Paul opens up verse 11 by saying he wants to impart a spiritual gift to strengthen them. When we when we see these spiritual gifts listed in Paul's letters, what, what, whatever the, those gifts are in particular, it's a work of the Spirit through a Christian for the building up of the church. And so Paul wants to use the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given him to strengthen the Roman church. But he clarifies and he says that he wants this to be mutually encouraging to one another's faith. So he wants them to use the gifts that God has given them to encourage him as well. Paul's been called to do gospel ministry among the Gentiles, and God has empowered him for that task. And so he, he wants, uh, in verse 15, he hopes that the preaching of the gospel would cause a harvest to be reaped amongst them and amongst the Gentiles in the city. 
You see, good Christian friends, they seek mutual spiritual encouragement. Don't, but don't get, don't get the wrong idea of what encouragement is here. Don't confuse it with what is oftentimes the modern idea of encouragement, that, that someone would just kind of give you some warm, fuzzy feelings, right? Uh, man, just give me a pat on the back. That's all I want. And sometimes a pat on the back is, you know, good and what we need, but, but sometimes encouragement needs to take a different form. The harvest, I think, that Paul wants to reap, I think it has to do with the dual purposes that we talked about for the book of Romans, the, the, the purpose of unity and the purpose of mission amongst them. Paul hopes that his gospel preaching would spiritually strengthen the church as it produces unity in the church and as it adds new believers to the church. Because Paul's most thankful for their faith, seeing that grow, seeing new people have faith, will not only be incredibly encouraging to him, but it will be incredibly encouraging to the church as well. And he hopes also would cause them to support him to continue to go on and to preach the gospel in new places. And sometimes this kind of mutual encouragement, it, it does come with those warm fuzzies, but sometimes initially it doesn't feel very good, right? Have you ever received encouragement that in the moment didn't feel so warm and fuzzy, it felt more like a, a kick in the pants, right? And you're like, ow, that... That did not feel good. But later on, you realize, actually, that's what I needed to get moving again. This encouragement ought to move us towards real unity and mission. And again, that takes an incredible amount of spiritual discernment, I guess, leading of the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, to be a good Christian friend and to know when, when someone needs the pat on the back and when they need a kick in the back, right? And we'll get it wrong sometimes, we will. Man, will we get it wrong. But, but when our friends get it wrong with us, do we look at them and go, ah, but, but I, know it, I know that they wanted I know that they cared about my faith above everything else. I know that they wanted to encourage me spiritually. And I know that they, they wanted me to not just, you know, feel good and ignore the reality of what I needed to pay attention to, but they, but they actually wanted what was ultimately long-term best for me. And they were willing to sacrifice their comfort and their convenience in order to help me. Mm. And that brings us to our last quality, and perhaps, I don't know, perhaps probably the most important quality. A good Christian friend speaks boldly the gospel into your life. A good Christian friend speaks boldly the gospel into your life. This section finishes with, with a very important description of the gospel message that Paul is so eager to preach amongst them. He's not only eager, but he says that he's not ashamed of it. He's, he's bold about it. The reason he's eager and he's not ashamed is because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is effective. It is the only thing 
but it's effective. It is the solution to every problem. And if you think your problem has a different solution, you probably don't realize what your problem is. Every kind of person is the kind of person who needs the gospel. It reveals through faith the righteousness of God and has the power through faith to transform our lives to greater degrees of righteousness. So why does Paul make a point to say that he's unashamed of it. If it's so great, why does he even need to say that? Well, when Paul says he's not ashamed, the word ashamed is related to the word offensive. And friends, the gospel can seem offensive to us sometimes. It can seem offensive because it tells us we don't deserve it or anything except death and hell. It can seem offensive because it tells us that we are so bad and so sinful that God himself had to come and die for us. It can seem offensive because it tells us that we did not and cannot do anything at all, not in the slightest degree, to earn it. It can seem offensive because the way that Jesus won it was through humility and suffering. Perhaps you still think, well, I know all of those things, Cody. Why? Why? What do you mean it's offensive? What do you mean it's an offensive thing? Well, you might like it here at church when we talk about it in a general sense. But when someone applies the gospel particularly and specifically to the situation in your life, that's not always pleasant at first. Let's look at some examples. I'll just give you a few examples from real life. Perhaps, perhaps it's not such a big deal to confess to your good Christian friend that you're a sinner and that you sinned this week, and yes, I need forgiveness from Jesus. But when they ask you to confess specifically which sins you committed, which sins you were tempted to, when they point out the particular area where you aren't believing God that they see but you don't see, when they call you to repent and actually hold you accountable to changing something in your life that doesn't feel good, does it? I, that, you may not react well to that initially. I know I haven't always. But perhaps when your life is hard, here's another example. Perhaps when your life is hard and you don't, you don't mind someone reminding you, a good Christian friend reminding you of Christ's suffering and, and God's sovereignty. But when you're complaining and your good Christian friend compassionately but pointedly reminds you that the only thing you deserve is actually death and hell, that, that, that good thing that you think you deserve, you don't deserve that. Like, the only thing you deserve is death and hell. That's what you deserve from, from the actions that you've committed on the earth. When, when they remind you that the only reason you don't get that is because Christ suffered far more than you're suffering now or than you will ever suffer in your life. When they remind you that you aren't trusting in God's sovereignty to make bad situations into spiritually beneficial results like God did and proved at the cross... 
And so if you can't believe that in your life right now, how are you believing that for Jesus for your salvation? That doesn't feel very good initially, does it? But it's what we need to hear. It's true. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's actually nice when you, when, when, when you realize you've been bitter towards someone and a good Christian friend helps you to walk through you know, conflict resolution. You're like, oh, that was, that was really nice. But, but when you're holding a grudge against a person and you're still mad at them and your good Christian friend reminds you that what you did to Jesus is far worse than what anyone has ever done to you or ever will do to you. That Jesus didn't hold a grudge against you, but, but he actually forgave you, Christian. That in Christ, you have no right to withhold the opportunity for forgiveness from anyone if they are repentant. Well, that doesn't feel very great in the moment. So, to go back to my point, sometimes the gospel is offensive. And it feels offensive. But Paul is unashamed because he knows that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And in every single one of those situations, the only solution to those problems is the gospel. It's the only thing that will work. I could go on with other examples. Most of these examples are pulled from my own life when I was on the receiving end of a good Christian friend. And I've got plenty of other ones. But the point is this, speaking the gospel is universally celebrated in the church until someone speaks the gospel straight into your life. And then it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa I don't need the gospel there. I just want to pat on the back. It's what I call gospel surgery, Right? Someone has to get into that wound and clean it out, clean out the bad, clean out the lies, clean out the sin, and then put the gospel, the truth, and the good right in there. And that process, it hurts. And the bigger and deeper and the more widespread the issue is, the more painful that surgery becomes. But more sweet the healing is at the end. And what I'm realizing is surgery is usually followed with physical therapy, right? And even after the surgery happens, there's spiritual exercise that you have to do to recover, to redevelop the spiritual muscles that have atrophied, to get use back to those joints and if you've had a surgery and you've had to do physical therapy, you know physical therapy is about the least fun thing in the entire world. It's just not fun. And it hurts. But unlike physical therapy, guys, here's where the hope is. Unlike physical therapy where you go, you know what, my body will never be the same because this body is dying and it's decaying and, and it will continue to do so until God brings us into glory. Here's what, the, what, what God promises us through the Holy Spirit, that when we do spiritual therapy, that actually we can grow more whole than we were before the surgery ever happened, that we can actually be stronger, that we can actually increase in strength and ability and movement. That's what we are promised through the Holy Spirit. 
But these bodies, they die away and they decay, but the Spirit continues to grow and sanctify us into greater degrees until he brings us in to glory. The truth is, we are all learning to be better gospel surgeons. And again, just like all of these things, we don't always speak the gospel perfectly well into people's lives. We try and then we kind of goof it up and nick things that we shouldn't nick when we're in there, right? We have to ask ourselves, would I rather have a friend who is trying to do the right thing and messes it up sometimes, or a friend who doesn't get care enough to try? So we have to ask ourselves. We have to ask, would we rather have a friend who makes us feel good at the expense of speaking truth or a friend who speaks the truth, sometimes it doesn't always come out in the best ways. What we're really saying, if we want the first and not the latter, what we're really saying is that we care more about feeling good than we care about becoming more like Christ. I want you to understand that. When you would rather have a friend that just, just make me feel good, just make me feel good rather than, than saying the hard thing that's actually going to make me good. What you're saying is I care more about feeling good than I care about being more like Jesus. That's what you're saying. See, good Christian friends, they're not perfect Christian friends. Don't confuse the two. Speaking of imperfect friends, perhaps you're wondering what happened with my friends, my non-roommates friends now. And trust me, uh, all the things that you can imagine wanting to say or wanting to do in return, I thought of all of them. I considered all of them, right? I got by myself and ranted about all of them. I was pretty deeply hurt. But I had this other good Christian friend at the time. And you might know her. Her name's Amanda. She's my wife now. And I remember sitting with her, and I was ranting and raving, and just like, you know, you could imagine, and like saying all sorts of mean things, and I never want, you know, want to talk to them again, and they can go places and whatever. God's done a lot of sanctifying in me in the last decade and a half or however long it's been. But I remember... She calmly sat there and listened to me and, and, and then interjected something to the effect, hey, look, I know you're mad, and this sucks, and it, and it hurts. It's a bad deal. But do you really want to not be their friends anymore? Is that really what Christ would have you do? You know, and I thought about it, and I thought about as terrible as that moment felt, as terrible as that one thing was, all the times that these guys had displayed so many of the qualities of a good Christian friend over the years, all the ways that they had encouraged me in my faith, been encouraged by me, all the ways that they had 
been there in difficult times, said the hard things, held me accountable. A good Christian friend isn't a perfect Christian friend. And I'd rather keep the imperfect ones I have than go looking for perfect ones that don't exist. So I stayed friends with them and I forgave them. And they became groomsmen in my wedding and we remain friends today and they continue to encourage me in Christ. And so when your good Christian friends act like bad Christian friends, and they will, they might need a good Christian friend to help them get back on track. And that might be you. And here's the deal. None of us are perfect. And Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 15, he told them that, that they were his friends. Right? But none of us have been good Christian friends to Christ, have we? All of us at different times have turned our back on him. And yet, he doesn't just keep us as groomsmen, but his word says that he actually makes us his bride. Can you believe that? And so, in those moments, when a good Christian, when, <laughs> when our good Christian friend acts like a bad Christian friend, in those moments when we would rather act like a bad friend than a good Christian friend because of what someone has done to us. You should remember what Christ has done for you. Now, he, he actually has empowered you by his spirit to exhibit the qualities of a good Christian friend, even in those situations. Would you trust him in that? because he's done that for you.